Well, it's Saturday morning, and the kids are all gathered around the TV, watching cartoons, maybe playing video games. The house is a mess, and specifically, the kids' rooms are just a disaster, you know? It looks like a bomb went off in there, and, and mom needs help cleaning things up. So how does she let the kids know that they need to get busy cleaning up their room? Well, I want to suggest to you she might try several different approaches. For instance, first of all, she might just set an example. Maybe she hopes that uh, if, she get busy, if she gets busy doing what she wants them to do, uh, then maybe they will follow her example and go to work and pick up their messy rooms and so forth. But, sadly, no luck. She sets the example. She's busy working, but it doesn't seem to phase them. They just keep playing their video games and watching TV. And so she decides that she'll try something else. She decides to use the practice of implication and inference. She says, kids who don't help with cleaning don't get to go outside and play later today. She makes that statement, but again, the kids don't take the hint and they do not join in to start cleaning up the house. And so, Mom thinks she'll try one more thing. She thinks she'll try a plain statement of fact. Your rooms need cleaned up, and I need your help, she says. Again, nothing. They don't move. No reaction. And so she has one last-ditch effort to try and get them to do the right thing, And so she uses a direct command. Get up from that couch, turn off the TV, get to your rooms, and don't come out out until they are spotlessly clean. Well, success at last. The kids get up and they go to work. Now think about that. Four different ways to try to convey a message, to try and let the kids know what she wanted them to do. First, set an example. Another, uh, 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 imply something to them, uh, then uh, to make a statement of, of reality, and finally to make a direct command. I want to ask you the question, what else could mom have done? How else could she have conveyed the information that she wanted them to clean their rooms? Well, there really isn't any other way. These are the only ways that we have to communicate instructions to people. That's just all there is. Do you see it? That's how language works. That's how we communicate as humans. These are also then the ways that God communicates to us. That's the point we want to make. Just like that mom trying to get her kids to do something, that's how she would communicate. It's really the only only channels or means of communication that she would have available. Just like that mom, that's the way that God communicates to us. That's the only way that we can find out what God wants us to do. For a few minutes tonight, we want to review some very familiar information, asking the question, how do we know what God wants us to do? And in reality, that question is answered by when we study how to establish Bible authority. 
The way we establish Bible authority is very important because it's how we understand what God wants us to do. Just like that mom was trying to get her kids to understand what she wanted them to do, we need to understand what God wants us to do, and he communicates to us in these ways. It is how we establish Bible authority. We want to review um, that subject tonight. We've studied it many times before, but it needs repeating. We want to spend a few minutes doing that tonight. Thanks for being here tonight. We're very glad to see everyone. So thankful that you're interested enough in spiritual things to come back on Sunday night to join in another uh, time of Bible study and worship. Thank you for being here. We have many visitors tonight. We're grateful for all of our visitors. We hope you know that, and we hope you'll come back every time you have a chance to be here. So how do, how do we establish Bible authority? It's so important. Uh, the, all the religious division that we see in the world today has resulted from a failure to honor Bible authority. Uh, it's, it's evident in the denominational religious world, but I think it's also evident among churches of Christ. And so we need to study about Bible authority. Now, we just used that illustration about a mom using these methods to tell her kids what to do. And we've tried to make the point, God communicates to us the same way. Let's show that Jesus used this very same methodology uh, as he was teaching. Again, as we said, it's really the only way that we can convey information or instructions. And we can see that Jesus used these methods. For instance, what about the idea of setting an example? Uh, Jesus sometimes set examples uh, with the idea that his disciples would see what he did and imitate him. A very well-known incident of that is in John chapter 13, beginning verse 12. After Jesus had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said to them, Know ye what I have done to you? Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. If I then your Lord and Master have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. You see that? Jesus humbly served his disciples by washing their feet. And he said, my intention there was to set an example for you to learn that you should humbly serve your fellow uh, servants. And so Jesus used example as a way of conveying what he wanted done, right? We also see that Jesus used the notion of implication and inference. Just like, the, just like we do, he sometimes said things with the intention that people would draw what we often refer to as an inescapable conclusion. In other words, he would say something or present a case in such a way that there was only one reasonable conclusion to be drawn from what he said. Let me give you an example of that. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus was confronted by the Sadducees. Remember, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection or a life beyond the grave. And so to them, to those Sadducees, Jesus said, As touching the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken unto you by Abraham, or excuse me, spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now remember, He's talking to the Sadducees. They do not believe there is life beyond the grave. They believe you're dead. You're done. But notice, Jesus referenced when God spoke to Moses at the burning bush. Now think about that. When God spoke to Moses at the burning bush, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been dead for hundreds of years. They had been physically dead for hundreds of years. 
But when God spoke to Moses at the burning bush, God said to Moses, I am, present tense, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so you see how he's making an argument. There's, there's something in that statement. Something is implied in that statement. Something's implied in the statement when God said, I am the God of Abraham. They've been dead. They've been dead for hundreds of years. But God would still say, I am. And therefore, the conclusion you have to draw from that is, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still living. They're not living in this physical world, but they still exist in the, in the spiritual world, in eternity. And so, Jesus used the idea of, making an implication, hoping that people would draw an inference from what was implied in that statement. Jesus often made direct statements with the idea of conveying information, giving instructions. Uh, Sometimes he would just simply make plain statements, uh, statements of fact, and those would deliver essential information. For instance, here's a case from John chapter 3. You know John 3. John 3 is when Jesus spoke to Nicodemus. You remember Nicodemus came to him by night and asked him some questions. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say to thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Here's a very plain statement of fact. Unless you are born of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, that's just a statement of fact. That's just a statement. But certainly that statement obviously teaches the necessity of baptism uh, for salvation, right? So a plain statement of fact, but it again, it conveys information about what we must do. And then sometimes Jesus did offer direct commands, telling people exactly what he wanted done. And... We get that idea, for instance, from Mark's account of the Great Commission. In Mark chapter 16, verse 15, Jesus said, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's a, that's a direct command. Go ye. Go do this. And so we see in that that Jesus often used direct commands to tell people what to do. Tell us what to do. All right. Just like that mom we illustrated at the start. Used these methods to try and convey information to her children. You notice that Jesus did the same thing? I wonder why Jesus did the same thing the same way. Why did he use those same methodology? Because that's all there is. That's the only way we can tell people what needs to be done. That's how we convey information to people. Now, not to uh, stay on this too hard to become burdensome, but I want to show you that not only did Jesus do that, but we see that his apostles did the same thing. They taught in the same way, and I want to illustrate that. For instance, we know that the apostles used example and believed that inspi- uh, approved example was a definite means of establishing authority for our religious practice today. For instance, notice what Paul said in Philippians chapter 4. We almost got to this verse this morning in our Bible class, but we didn't quite. But in Philippians 4 verse 9, Paul said, "...those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do..." And the God of peace shall be with you. Notice, he said, you do what you have seen me do. Well, what is that? Well, uh, clearly Paul is saying, my practice, my approved apostolic example is authoritative. You should do what you have seen me do. And so actually what we have here really is Paul giving a command 
that we should follow his example. So certainly, example is authoritative then, right? In recent years, there have been some folks who have attacked this sort of reasoning. They say, oh, you know, you all, you all in the Church of Christ, you've got this approved apostolic example thing going on, but we don't believe that. We don't think that that establishes a pattern or that that shows us what should be done. Well, it really does, doesn't it? Because we, we, what we have here, effectively, is Paul commanding that we do what he did, that we follow his example, right? So certainly, example is a method of conveying information, and the apostles used it. What about implication and inference? You know, sometimes we mix those words up, and we don't use them accurately. I imply something, and you infer from what I said, you infer a conclusion. So that the, the one speaking gives the implication, and the one who receives that, that message infers or concludes from it. And so sometimes we talk about implication and inference. Very often we refer to necessary inference. Necessary inference is, in other words, based upon what is said in a Bible passage, then we draw a conclusion from that, as I, I used the expression a minute ago, an inescapable conclusion, a necessary inference. There's really no way to avoid it, that sort of thing. So that's what we're talking about by implication, inference, necessary inference, inescapable conclusion. The apostles used that sort of methodology. For instance, notice in Hebrews chapter 7, it's talking about the fact that we're not under the Old Testament law of Moses anymore. That, and, and the Hebrew writer is working hard to establish that the law has been changed. And in Hebrews 7, beginning verse 12, it says, For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken, talk about Jesus, Jesus pertained to another tribe of which no man gave attendance at the altar. Remember, Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. The Old Testament priests were all necessarily from the tribe of Levi. Now he says, For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. Now, what's he trying to establish here? He's trying to argue that the Old Testament law has been abolished and has been replaced with another. And that's proven by the fact that Jesus is our high priest. But he couldn't have been. If that Old Testament law was still in force, Jesus couldn't possibly have been a priest. He was of the wrong tribe, right? So what he's doing here is showing that by inference and implication, a change in law has taken place by virtue of the fact that Jesus is a priest and he couldn't have been under that previous law. He's asking them to draw a necessary inference or an inescapable conclusion concerning the fact that the law has been changed. We know that the apostles often made direct statements, and the statements conveyed necessary information. Notice, for instance, Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. We're ba we've been baptized into Christ. That's just a statement. We've been baptized into Christ. Now, that's important, of course, because Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 says all spiritual blessings are in Christ. If we want to have spiritual blessings, those spiritual blessings are in Christ. The only way we can be in Christ is to be baptized into Christ. This is just a statement of fact. As many of you have been baptized in Christ and put on Christ. But it tells you, of course, that baptism is necessary, right? This verse certainly stresses the importance and necessity of baptism 
It's just a statement of fact. But when you read that statement of fact, you'd certainly be led to the conclusion that baptism is very important, right? And then finally, direct commands. Uh, the apostles, like Jesus, often used direct commands to convey information. For instance, look in Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. Paul says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly and not after the tradition which he received of us. I don't know how we would escape this. He says it's a command. We command you. Here he's talking about the practice of church discipline. If there's an unfaithful brother uh, or sister, they should be disciplined. But he says it's a command. And I don't know how we get around that. It's commanded. You know, it's, it's pretty amazing to me that there are a lot of congregations these days who don't practice church discipline. When it's very clear that Paul said it's commanded that we do that sort of thing. All right. Now, again, example. Necessary inference, statements of fact, direct command. That's how we conclude what God wants us to do. I'm sad to say, though, that that form of Bible understanding, that, that method of interpreting the Scriptures to answer our questions, how do we know what God wants us to do? That means of establishing Bible authority. There are a lot of people who are saying, ah, you, you people dreamed that up. You Church of Christ people dreamed that up about 150 years ago, and you've been adamantly hanging on to that old way of reasoning. Some of our own brethren have said, what we need is a new hermeneutic. Have you ever heard that expression? We need a new hermeneutic. You know what a hermeneutic is? A hermeneutic is a, is a method of interpretation. We, and so these people would say, we need a new method of interpretation. This old idea of command, statement, implication, and example, that's, that's way out of date. And besides that, it was just dreamed up by men in the Church of Christ anyway. We need to do something different. Well, the, what I really am trying to emphasize to you in our lesson is we didn't dream that up. That's the way language works. That's the way information is conveyed. Uh, that's not something that... that was invented by someone in the Church of Christ. That's how people talk. And that's how God communicates to us. And we really want to stress that. In fact, we would issue a challenge. If that doesn't work, then what would you do? What plan would you come up with? You, you, want, to, you want to get somebody to do something. How are you going to get them to do that? If you can't use that methodology, what methodology are you going to use? I suggest to you there is none. There is no other way to do that. All right. So, by approved example, by necessary inference, by direct statements and commands, we learn what God wants us to do. Let's, before, before we wrap that up, though, let's just review a, a few other important things relative to this very important question of how do we know what God wants us to do? How do we establish Bible authority? We need to point out that we need to respect the silence of the Scriptures. Now, there's two approaches. When the Bible doesn't mention something, there's two approaches that men historically have taken. One approach is that where God has not spoken, we're at liberty to act as we think best. And their conclusion is that silence gives freedom to act. The other option, which is really just the opposite of that, is where the Bible is silent, we must be silent. We can only do those things which are authorized. Now, that's an old debate, and that's been going on for centuries but which one is right? Which position is right? Well, actually, I think the Bible itself gives us the answer. 
In other words, when the Bible is silent, can we do anything we want? Or, or if the Bible is silent, must we be silent and only do what the Bible is authorized us to do? I think the Scriptures answer that for us. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11, Peter said, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. An oracle is an utterance. Uh, and therefore, if you're going to speak, you speak what God has spoken. You speak as, as God has uttered to us. That's what you should say and do. Uh, just give an example of that. Someone says, you know, uh, we're going to have a we're going to have a, a, a gathering, a, a Bible study on on Thursday night, and on Thursday night we think we're going to pass the collection uh, basket. We're going to take up a collection on Thursday night. And somebody else says, well, where does, where's the authority for taking up a collection on Thursday night? And the fellow said, well, the Bible doesn't, the Bible's silent on Thursday night collection. Yeah, that's right. The Bible is silent on that. So how are you going to take up a collection on Thursday night and speak as the oracles of God? You can't, can you? Because the Bible doesn't say that. It doesn't authorize that. You would not be... If, 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 if someone stood up and said, okay, we're, we're taking up a collection on Thursday night, he could not be speaking as the oracles of God because the oracles of God don't say that, right? So we have to be silent where the Bible is silent. In Second John, verse 9, anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. We've got to, this answers the question. Does silence allow us to do whatever we want? Or where the Bible is silent, must we be silent? The second one is right, right? Where the Bible is silent, we must be silent. In addition to that, we need to understand a couple of broad categories of authority. There is something called specific authority. And specific authority is exactly what you might imagine it is. It means precisely formatted or formulated, restricted, explicit with this kind of authority, it limits us to do what is expressly stated in the command. The classic example of that is what God told Noah to do. God told Noah, make thee an ark of gopher wood. What was gopher wood? We're not even sure what gopher wood was. Some people say it might have been like what we refer to today as a cypress tree. We don't know that. It doesn't really matter. Noah obviously knew what gopher wood was. And really, when you make this point, I think everybody agrees. Everybody agrees. Noah had to use gopher wood. He could not have gone out and used oak or pine or cherry. That wouldn't have been right because God specified gopher wood, right? And almost everybody can see that. Well, that's what we're talking about when we talk about specific authority. Now, instead of building an ark, which we are not commanded to do, let's talk about something we are commanded to do. In, in this era, in the New Testament era, we are commanded to worship God with music. But the kind of music has been specified, vocal music, singing, several verses. One of them is the one that Timothy read for us earlier from Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16 that tells us to sing. The New Testament does not mention the use of instruments of music in the worship of God. In New Testament worship, singing is specified. So why do we say we should only sing and not play instruments? Well, because we have specific authority. When something is specified, every other option is excluded. You get, we know that. We've often used the illustration, for instance, you make an order. 
I used to say you make a catalog or uh, order. We don't use catalogs anymore. You do all your ordering online. So you make an online order. You go to Amazon.com and you place an order for one of the things. They've got thousands, I suppose hundreds of thousands of different things for sale on Amazon.com. You order one specific thing. You say, I want one of those. Well, do you have to tell them everything else you don't want? You have to go through the list of hundreds of thousands of things they have for sale and, and say, I don't want that, don't want that, don't want that, don't want... No, you don't have to. When you specify what you want, everything else is excluded. When God told Noah, make the an ark of gopher wood, we understand that every other kind of wood was therefore excluded. He had to use that specific kind. When we make an order on the Internet, the thing we specified is what we want. We don't want anything else. When God specifies what He wants, everything else is excluded. And again, I think the great example for us is that example of, of music. You know, that's a great issue in the religious world. Many people often ask us, as members of the Church of Christ, why don't you use instrumental music? Well, there's the answer. Why? Because God gave us specific authority for singing and worship in New Testament worship. All right, what about the other broad category of Authority. It is what we call general or generic authority, and it means exactly that. Authority of this sort allows us to use all legitimate methods or ways or means for doing the authorized thing. Matthew's account of the Great Commission says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations. You know that verse. Go ye. Go ye therefore. Go. That's a general command. There's a lots of ways to go. In, back in the first century... Uh, the, there were the means of going. You could travel by foot. You could ride an animal. You could take a sailing ship. You could go in lots of different ways. It's not specified here, right? When Jesus told his disciples, go ye into all the world and teach the gospel to every creature, or go ye therefore and teach all nations, he was, giving, he was authorizing them to use whatever legitimate ethical means was available to them to go. We've got even more means now. We've got car and plane and train and uh, TV and radio and internet. There's all different. There's a whole, a whole bunch of more new ways of going to get from where we are to the person that we want to teach. They're all authorized because of this general statement. Now, if, if Jesus had said, go on foot and teach all nations, then that would have limited us. We'd have to walk everywhere we go. Thankfully, he didn't do that. And he gave us a general command that includes all legitimate ethical means of accomplishing what was assigned to do. That's important. Uh, and we need to understand the application of general authority. All right. In regards to that, there's another thing that we sometimes talk about, expediency. Expediency only comes to play in areas where general authority is at rule. Right? Go. Go ye and teach all nations. Well, there might be a number of expedient ways to do that, some better than others, for instance. I could walk, but it's sure a lot faster to take a car. I could take a sailing ship, but it's a lot faster to take an airplane. You, you see, we, we are left to choose or make judgments about what's the best way to carry out the command. That's what an expedience is. And so expediency comes to play only when general authority is at rule. When something is specific, we, we don't have any options or judgments to employ. But when we have general authority, 
then we use our judgment as to what would be the best way to carry that out. Now, in regards to expediency, there's a couple important things. In other words, we're going to make a judgment about how to do that thing that's been generally instructed to us to do. But there are a couple of things that must be true of expedience, judgments or opinions, decisions that we make. And Paul mentions them in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 23. He says, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. Notice he has in mind here things of expediency. But he said in order for something to be considered, it first has to be lawful. Hmm, I wonder about that. I'm, I'm thinking about go. Go and teach all nations. I could steal a car and go. I could go, right? I could go. I could go in a stolen car. But that wouldn't be a lawful expedient, right? It, it's, it's a sin to steal. So it, 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 that wouldn't work because it doesn't... Here's an expedient that wouldn't work because it's not lawful, Right? And then, an expedient must also edify. We assemble on the Lord's Day uh, to worship God, observe the Lord's Supper. And that's been specified. It's been, it's been specified the Lord's Day. But the, the, the idea of gathering on the Lord's Day is general in the sense that it doesn't tell us when on the Lord's Day that we should assemble. And so, I'm going to suggest that we start meeting on the Lord's Day at 4 a.m. in the morning. Let's get an early start. Let's get her done. 4 a.m. Sunday morning. What would you think of that? It'd be lawful, right? Because it is the Lord's Day. But it wouldn't, be, it wouldn't edify many people. You want to talk about a lot of grousing and griping and complaining. i got to have a 4 a.m. No. That wouldn't, that wouldn't be expedient because it wouldn't edify. It would actually discourage people very badly. And so when it comes to expedience, the, the, something expedient in the realm of general authority has to be lawful and has to edify. All right, so we need to understand those principles in regards to how God conveys his will to us, how we establish Bible authority. Finally, we end with just that last familiar verse. It's one of our memory verses. Uh, Johnny mentioned it at the start, and then Timothy read it again to us from Colossians 3.17. Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. We need to have Bible authority for everything we do. Several years ago, some of us attended a debate up near Nashville, and the fellow who was debating actually made the outrageous statement. He said, we do lots of things that we don't have authority for. Really? That's a, that's a, that's a scary admission. We, uh, and we deny it. Now, that guy, I think, probably was uh, being accurate in regards to his practice. But in regards to our practice, we should say we don't want to do anything that we don't have authority for because here, this says we must have authority. Whatever, whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. We must have Bible authority for everything we do. And tonight, we've just tried to review some of the very basics as to how we establish Bible authority. Thanks for your good attention to what we had to say. We're going to end by singing a song of invitation. We always do that. Uh, this has not been the kind of lesson that motivates people to obey the gospel, but it might very well be the case that there's someone in our assembly tonight that desires to obey the simple gospel plan of salvation. Hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized. If that's the case, we're anxious to assist you in your obedience. Let us know if we can, how we can help. If you need the prayers of the saints, let us know that as well. 
If we can help in any way, please come while we stand and sing this song.